Welcome to Abnormal Psychology. Today, Chapter 2. Right? And our topic today, now this is going to be a two-part recording because I know we won't get through everything today. So I'm just giving you fair notice now. We're going to talk about the historical perspectives and views of abnormal behavior. All right? As you will find in most of my classes, I violate all the rules of PowerPoint again. They're way too busy. I try to shrink them down, but there's such cool stuff in there. I don't want to lose anything. They kind of work as my notes as well as yours. So I'm just letting you know. Hopefully you use them that way. So let's go ahead and see how far we can make it through this PowerPoint. We have 42 slides. We'll probably make it to 20. If we can make it halfway, I'll be happy. So let's go ahead and look. So models, metaphors, and paradigms. Paradigms are kind of ways or frameworks to approach an idea. You know, models are what we use to look at these abstract ideas. And metaphors are ways that we try to express ideas in terms that are more understandable. So one of the things that we know is in this field of psychology, if you recall, maybe from Psych 101 or our last class, psychology is a young field. The first lab in psychology, 1879. So we've only been around about 140 years. Think about that. As a field of study, 140 years. That's it. So it's not a long time. So because of that, we haven't had one specific paradigm or framework emerge as being this explains all behavior. And I'm going to let you in on a secret. Because we're dealing with human beings, I don't think we'll ever have that. So as a result, what we end up is we have a bunch of competing viewpoints that don't always agree. And sometimes they seem to be against each other. But what I'm going to let you know is when we talk about abnormal behavior, there are various causes for abnormal behavior. So it makes sense that one explanation would not fit all. What makes you depressed, what makes me depressed, what makes you depressed might be three different things. For me, maybe it was some trauma that happened in my life. For you, maybe it's a chemical imbalance, right? For you, maybe it was a learned behavior. You grew up in a family where everyone was depressed and they moped around like Eeyore all the time and now you're Eeyore, welcome, right? It can happen, you know it can. So again, where we're at today is that we have these series of competing viewpoints, still exists and each offers a different model or metaphor to explain observations and predict events. So we're gonna look at historically what are the perspectives we've looked at and then in the next chapter, chapter three, we're going to look at the modern or contemporary perspectives that we examine abnormal behavior from. Some of them are the same. Some of them have carried through. Some of them have held out. And some of them have faded away a bit. So just to let you know. So what's the three historical perspectives? If we were going to group them together. We could do them right here. right? The three models or metaphors for abnormal behavior, demonology, so things like spirit possession, witchcraft, uh, the devil possessed you and made you odd, right? Some kind of evil force, right? Beyond your control, beyond human control. So demonology, that's been one perspective. And believe it or not, that demonology idea has popped in and out of favor throughout history. The second one is naturalistic observations or explanations, an organic view or medical model. That also has popped in and out of favor 
throughout history. So we're going to talk about this. It's really kind of a fascinating history if you think about how we looked at abnormal behavior over time. And then the third perspective is this psychological view. And that really comes out of research on understanding hysteria and then learning behavior. So these are the old perspectives. These are the historical perspectives, kind of the the foundations that we started with. And you can see none of these really necessarily agree. Demonology, some, how does that fit uh, organic uh, approaches? It doesn't really. And how does like, I don't know, learning fit uh, organic approach? So again, we have these varying viewpoints. So we're gonna start with the first one. Let's talk about early demonology. If we went back in ancient times, back before Greco-Roman times, Drag it out. We'll say we're in prehistoric times. All right? There are people around, you know, from the dawn of man. If someone was acting strange, we believed it was an evil spirit. We didn't understand mental illness. So if someone was acting odd, then we believed that they were possessed by some god, spirit, demon. And that was a common theory. And believe it or not, this theory is quite prevalent throughout cultures. Regardless of culture, in the past, we couldn't explain behavior that was odd. We said it was possession. Because we didn't know any better. Exorcism is the practice of expelling demons um, from bodies they possess. So we would do these horrendous things to people to try to drive out the spirits that were stuck inside of them. One example is this skull you see down here at the bottom. And we believe, again, that this dates way back to prehistoric time. This is what we thought or people thought about mental illness back in the day. So trephination or trephining, that's what that word is, trephination, is the creation of a sizable hole in the skull. We found a bunch of skulls with these holes. Kind of, you can see how it's been marked and chipped away at. So we found these skulls with these holes chipped away and we, we tried to piece it together. What do these mean? And the best explanation we can come up with is that maybe this was someone who was mentally ill. They thought that they heard voices in their head. Their friends, without anesthesia, held them down and chipped away at their skull to allow the evil spirits to get away. If you survived the procedure, you were probably a little off afterwards. I'm just saying, you know, think about that. Right? So this is what we believe. Now, I have to confess, there's no one around today that was around back then. We're guessing that's what happened. You know, maybe this was some kind of torturous religious thing. Maybe it had nothing to do with mental illness. But from what we can piece together, people didn't have a clear understanding of abnormal behavior. And so possession, because when we look at multiple cultures, we see the same themes coming up we can kind of piece it together. This must be how they perceived it. All right, now, what happens is, that's where we kind of have our origins. And then the Greco-Roman time period comes along and we kind of switch. Not everybody believed in possession, in these evil spirits. So we come along to this culture, you know, ancient early Greek and Roman views, and they didn't believe in spiritual possession. They were scholars. They were more scientific in their approach. They looked at things through different eyes. And what they believed, these Greek and Roman physicians and philosophers, they were more modern in what they thought. They believed 
that physical and mental disorders had an explainable cause. That it was like a disease. That it had a pattern. It could be treated. It wasn't evil spirits in you. It was something wrong with, I don't know, maybe the four humors of your body or maybe something that was going on psychologically. But again, they removed this idea of possession of some external outside powerful force. And they tried to get more realistic in their views. Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine, advocated for naturalistic observations. He said that behavioral abnormalities were like sicknesses, just like physical disorders. And he actually had a treatment for what's called melancholy. Melancholy is what we know today to be depression. He'd say that if you were suffering from melancholy, here's what you needed to do. You needed to eat a balanced meal, get moderate exercise, get good rest and sleep. He also said that that you needed to abstain from sexual behavior. Now we're talking about depression. Sometimes people don't feel very comfortable about themselves, you know. And we look in the mirror and we go, Ugh. So abstain from those things that make you feel bad about yourself. This is what he's saying. And then bloodletting. Now, except for the bloodletting, the rest of it actually sounds a little homeopathic. Eat a good meal, get good rest, exercise, take better care of yourself, and the melancholy will pass. That's pretty good, right? And then bloodletting comes in. Well, you know, they didn't know everything. But they knew quite a bit considering where they came from. Demon possession, right? So Hippocrates, or Hippocrates, right? He uh, advocated for this medical approach to treatment, right? Which we, again, today would might call New Age, but back then it wasn't. Galen is another... Uh, physician, philosopher, who proposed that psychological abnormalities were caused by imbalances of important bodily fluids that he said we had. He said we had four humors. We had four fluids that existed within our body. Yellow bile, black bile, blood, and phlegm. Well, think about it, you know. Saliva, phlegm, blood, Black bile, I mean, I, I hate to be gross, but diarrhea is kind of, and then, right? So again, yellow bile, black bile, blood and phlegm. So if you're acting strange, one of your fluids is off. That's where the bloodletting came in. Maybe we need to drain some of that fluid that's bad from you, get it out of you. Huh. Again, it's still a more biological approach. So that's this historical, this organic biological view. Now, one of the things you need to know, though, is that when cultures fall, usually everything associated with that culture is considered bad or not good. So when the Greco-Roman kind of era passed, anyone that believed that was considered to be a traitor to the new you know, approach, the new thought. And so guess where we went back to? Demonology. Christianity came in, and I'm not trying to pick on Christianity or religion in general, but Christianity came in, and they started talking about, no, it's God's wrath, that's why this is happening to you, you've done bad, it's evil. So we went right back into this idea of demon possession. And we stayed there for a long time, because anybody that talked against the church would be 
a heretic. You can't do oh. So people were quiet. They, you know, of course there was probably pockets of people going, this is crazy, but you know, they couldn't say anything. Come along the Middle Ages and we have these things occurring called dance manias, episodes of apparent mass madness where groups of people would start dancing in the street. Today what we think is that maybe there was like a mass infection. And so again, maybe people were suffering from uh, delirium and dancing in the streets, we don't know. Um, in Europe, or in Italy, episodes were called tarantism because it was believed that they were caused by the bite of a tarantula. That, you know, you got bitten by these spiders and then you started dancing in the street and doing, uh, you know, odd behaviors and things. And people joined together. It's kind of like a flash mob of today. Except not as fun. <laughs> a little bit more lunacy in there, right? In Europe, they were called St. Vitus Dance because in 1518, Right? A bunch of dancers ran into the chapel of St. Vitus. They were sent there to try to get him treatment, to try to help him. We believe that this was the wrath of, of the devil. Evil possession. Take him to the chapel and let's fix them. So we called it St. Vitus Dance. So again, this is what's happening. These kind of mass hysteria. Right? In some areas, the dance mania has become almost an annual ritual. You know, kind of like, I don't know, the, the purge, but, you know, not with a violent end, right? Every year, let's get together and dance in the streets and, and carry on a little bit. Mardi Gras, anybody? I mean, think about that, right? Could that? You know, just saying. In the Middle Ages, we also had this belief in witchcraft. And from the 15th century to the 17th century, for about 200 years, this really dominated this thought pattern. Right? We led to this idea of preoccupation with witches and the destruction of witches. We had to get rid of them. They were evil. It was believed originally that witches voluntarily signed a pact with the devil. And that's why they had these powers, these witchy powers, right? That they intentionally uh, signed a pact. But what happened was, later on, that intentionality started to fade. It didn't matter whether you did it on purpose or whether it just randomly happened. You signed a pact with the devil, you shall pay. And again, because people were acting odd and we needed an explanation, so we said, well, you must have agreed to it. Because some mental illnesses, people don't think they're ill. Think about schizophrenia where a person believes they're a famous person. I believe I'm Moses. I'm walking around believing I'm Moses. Why do you believe that? You must have voluntarily walked into there. So flogging, starvation, immersion in hot water, all these torturous behaviors of exorcism that existed prior to the Greco-Roman times start coming back into play. More redefined forms of torture were employed to drive out the devils um, that were believed to possess the people. I take you down to the local pond, right? And you're talking, you're, you know, kind of strange and speaking in tongues. And I believe an evil spirit has you. So I hold your head under the water, right? You start flailing your arms around. The evil spirit's got her, and I need to get her free from that. So I hold her head under. Her arms are flailing around, Right? She starts to calm down a little bit. I'm like, ah, her spirit's being released, right? And all of a sudden, I let, go to let her head up, and her arms start flailing again. This is an evil spirit that does not want to come out. I hold her head down longer until she's finally calm. 
what happened? She's dead. I drowned her. But I freed her soul. I make fun, but you know it went down. Now, what I'm going to tell you is, even during this time period, there were voices of reason. People who tried, tried to talk to people saying, hey, this witch stuff is, 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 is out there. It's, you, you need to drop this, right? We have Johann Weiner, who's from 1515 to 1588, believed that many witches were mentally disturbed individuals who needed care and treatment. We're punishing these people. We're torturing them. And maybe they're just mentally ill. Maybe there's just something wrong with their thinking. Maybe, maybe it's not evil possession. Maybe there's a biological or organic reason or psychological reason. Reginald Scott published The Discovery of Witchcraft, 18, or 1584, in which he especially denied the role of demons producing mental illness. So there's another person saying, wait, 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 they're mentally ill. It's not demons doing this. And then St. Vincent de Paul argued that mental diseases were similar to and akin to bodily diseases. Boy, it sounds like that Greco-Roman perspective coming back, doesn't it? One example that your book talks about is the witch trials of Salem, where things really got off the hook. I hate to say it though, but that's true. So it was in the summer, fall of 1693. Right? There were 17 women and two men that were hanged as witches. And by the way, there was one other man who was crushed to death by stone because he refused to say whether he was you know, signed a pact with the devil or not. Because he refused to plead innocence or guilty, they thought they would squeeze the truth out of him and they crushed him under stones. Apparently, the only thing he said as they were stacking the stones on him were more weight. See, back in the day, if you admitted that you were a witch, then you lost all of your possessions and belongings. But you were saved by being put in jail. If you claimed you weren't a witch and they suspected you were, then you would be hanged. Then you would lose all your possessions. And let's say that I'm your neighbor and I want your land. I just say that you're a witch. You possessed me in some way. So that your land gets taken away from you, then I can scarf it up for a low price and take advantage of it. Do you think this stuff happened? Hell yeah. In fact, there's some suspicion that's what was going down in some cases in Boston, in Salem. So, the accusers in this case were a bunch of young girls. They had been caught by their father dancing around a fire. And back in those religious days, you didn't dance, and you did not dance around a fire. It was believed that was satanic. So here they were in the woods dancing around a fire. They were reported as doing that. There was some actual some unfair behavior going on. There's a lot. The story is pretty interesting if you want to dig down into it. There's a really good movie called The Crucible, kind of based loosely on the facts. Check it out. Um, I, th I think that you'll like it, right? Over time, the witch trials developed this common pattern. 
during the trials where people were taken to trial that they were witches and they said, no, I'm not a witch. One of the girls in the courtroom would go, oh, I'm feeling possessed, right? So she would start to have fits and convulsions and would claim to see a form, a a spectral form of the villager who was doing it to her over top of her. And at that time, then of course the other girls would go, yes, I see it, I see it. And dig this, that was enough to convict you. Spectral evidence alone. They accused a preacher in town. The way that it stopped is at one point, finally, the governor's wife was accused of being a witch. And he said, whoa, leave my wife alone. And finally, they stopped the craziness. But this is what went down, right? That was enough. What about today? Do we believe in demonology today? Well, believe it or not, a little bit. In fact, in the 20th century, we saw a resurgence of this kind of demonology perspective. The belief in the occult phenomenon has enjoyed a bit of a revival. Over half the individuals in a random telephone survey of the southern states, this is from 2003, believe that people are sometimes possessed by the devil. And there were TV shows and movies, Rosemary's Baby, for example, that depicted satanic worship, kind of rituals and things like that. So this ritualistic abuse by Satan worshipers became popular explanation that that's what caused people to have dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder, that they were traumatized in some way Right? And that was shown in many programs and magazines in the 1970s and 80s that just kind of fed this. 1992, the FBI did a, st- a study. They did some research and they wrote a report and it, they concluded, I like how this is worded. I just want you to catch the nuance here. That there was little or no evidence of allegations of satanic ritualistic abuse. Little or no. So, mm, there probably was some that they found, but it was pocketed. It wasn't as widespread as you believe it to be. And it's not this big, you know, demonology is on the rise again. Oh my goodness, we're, we're going back into that mindset. Now, some humanistic reforms came into play, right? So people tried to get help to these people who were mentally ill. Um, many monasteries started to become safe havens for the mentally ill. They provide shelter and clothing and food. So these monasteries started to turn into um, asylums, you know, places to escape if you can get help, if you will. But unfortunately, eventually, they became overcrowded, noisy, and very unsanitary. So while they were trying to help, they got inundated and they couldn't keep up with the number of people that were showing up. In fact, living conditions at Bethlehem Hospital at London Asylum that opened in 1547 were so crazy, were so off the wall, so noisy and chaotic that the word Bedlam has come from that hospital. That's from that experience. So if you ever heard someone say, well, it's just nothing but Bedlam, right. They're saying that, again, it's this noisy, chaotic experience. 
The 18th and 19th century, however, this human, humanitarian kind of approach continued. And there's some famous people up here, and I'm just going to run through them quickly. Right? So there were several reformers that began improving the care of the mentally disturbed. Let's start at the top. In France, Philippi Penal, he was a physician, and he was placed in charge of the large hospital in France, right? Paris, France, I believe it was. He was put in charge of the hospital for, again, where mentally ill were being housed. And he walked down through the hallways and people were chained to the walls. They're sitting in their own feces. They're being mistreated. And he said, these people are sick and we need to care for them. So he started this reform movement in France. William Tuke was in England and he started what was called the York Retreat, a giant kind of uh, institution, if you will, Right, kind of like a, I don't. I was going to say plantation. That's not the right word, right? But really, this location it had rolling hills and grass around, so that the patients could wander outside and get exposed to air. They weren't locked away, right? They were housed there. Now, treatment was still pretty, pretty rough. In the York Retreat, William Tuke had built in um, trap doors in the hallways. So you'd be walking down the hallway, the trap door would kick open and you would fall into freezing cold water called that early shock treatment. They'd strap people down on a rotating chair and spin you, spin you, spin you till you kind of went like, you got all like dizzy and you know, disoriented. And then supposedly that was supposed to help calm you down and make you feel better. They still did bloodletting because that's what they did at the day. In fact, I believe George Washington died because he got the flu and they did bloodletting and he actually died that way. So believe it or not, those kind of things happen. So that's what's happening in England. William Tuke, that's better. At least it's not exorcisms, but it's still not quite right. right? Dorothea Dix here in the United States, she was in uh, New England um, there's some debate whether she was a school teacher or a Sunday school teacher. I, I'm leaning towards the Sunday school teacher. Right? So she was a New England uh, teacher who saw the mentally ill being housed in jails, county jails, said that that was, in, you know, it was wrong, it was inhumane. She actually traveled up and down the northeast coast, came to Pennsylvania even, and fought for the establishment of state hospitals. In fact, on the grounds of Harrisburg State Hospital, which unfortunately is now closed, was the Dorothea Dix Museum in her name. Benjamin Rush, also in the United States, but over in Philly. Benjamin Rush is considered the father, the father of American psychiatry. He actually was one of the signers of the Declaration so it tells you where it was in turn. He believed also that it was a physical ailment. He was a medical doctor trained in the medical sciences, and so he also believed that. And then Clifford Beers, interesting story. Clifford Beers was a man who actually had a mental breakdown, right? Was experienced the inhumane treatment of the day, got better, and then wrote a book about it. And the book's called A Mind That Found Itself, published in 1908. And it exposed all the harsh treatment that he had gone through while he was supposedly trying to be helped. So all of these factors, all these people, influenced the thinking at the time. And we moved away from that demonology and back into this idea of organic causes 
and back into the idea of psychological causes. Digging this? All right. So, the organic view. Eventually, again, these more naturalistic er, explanations re-emerged, right? They came back. The belief that disorders have a biological origin or a malfunctioning uh, kind of system that's transmitted through heredity or caused uh, by a disease, injury, lesion, or biochemical disturbance. I see I got a typo in there. I'm going to have to work on that. So again, we started going back to this idea that it's a physical cause, physical reason for the abnormal behavior. One of the people that was around, again, 15, notice it's the late 16 or late 1500s, early 1600s, right? Uh, Rene Descartes, he comes along, philosopher. He proposed, here was an interesting idea. He proposed that humans and animals worked much like machines did. So we've got the Industrial Revolution, we've got you know, machines coming about that are taking place of human beings. And he says that, you know what, humans and animals are much like machines, but humans are different because we have a soul. And he couldn't explain that. Right? We can act voluntarily. We don't just go through the motions. We can ch- make choices. And that's what's driven by that soul. So he actually started talking about this idea of dualism, that there's this mind-body separation. You could have the mind needed, like was ill, but the body was okay, or the body was ill and the mind was okay. So there was this kind of difference, this kind of split. And it was an interesting perspective. This philosophical view led to, let's explore the mechanisms of the physical body. What is it about the physical body? So again, we've got a soul, but what keeps the soul down? What, what holds it back? What's the physical restrictions maybe that the body places on it? Kind of interesting. So it led to this kind of, let's start looking at organic reasons again. We have Emil Kreplin. I like Emil Kreplin. Notice his time period, 1855 to 1926, right around the time Sigmund Freud's there. Sigmund Freud dies in 1939, wrote his book on interpretation of dreams in 1900. So this is right in prime time. Freud and Emil probably knew each other or communicated with one another in some way, form, I bet. Kreplin looked for individuals And and by the way, Emil Kreplin kind of started to create the first kind of modern classification system. Hippocrates actually did because he labeled some stuff, you know, melancholy. He had some other, you know, conditions that you could suffer from. But Emil Kreplin went went a step further and really started to look deeply at it, right? He looked for individuals with patterns of symptoms. He called them symptom complexes, which showed a similar onset course and outcome. And he found that there seemed to be two major clusters of these kinds of illnesses, if you will. The first one was manic depressive psychosis. So people who got manic and then they got really depressed, they'd be bouncing off the walls, not making sense, and then they they wouldn't get out of bed or they'd be suicidal. And psychosis, what we know about depression is sometimes you can get so depressed that you lose touch with reality. You know, talk to somebody who's really depressed. You go, you know, it's going to get better. It'll never get better. There's no reason to live. Well, tomorrow, you know, what about your family? But they, they, they get locked in this mindset that's very closed. So again, he said, 
That's kind of a set of cluster of symptoms. The second one was dementia precox. And what that's defined as, if we go literally, is dementia at an early age. Insanity at an early age. So dementia precox was another condition he identified, and that's what actually what we know as schizophrenia today. Insanity at an early age. Because you know, someone who's got dementia and they're older, they seem a little odd or off sometimes. They lose touch with reality. But with schizophrenia, that could happen when you're 18 or 20 or 30. So again, a third category actually happened later. He added it in. He said it rarely occurs, only has one symptom, and he said paranoia. I think that's kind of a subcategory of the schizophrenia, but it's just my opinion. So, Kreplin's two major classifications, believe it or not, those first two categories, accounted for two-thirds of all patients in mental health hospitals at the time. So he could explain two-thirds of the patients that were being held, and this is the reason why. Manic depressive psychosis or dementia precox. It established the belief that categories of mental disorders reflected distinct disease processes. Again, they had a course, they had an outcome, they had a pattern, they had a set of symptoms that you could identify, like a common cold. So now I can treat it like a medical model. We could focus on the cause and the cure if we investigated it as organic diseases. And so again, he kind of supported this idea of going further down this medical model, like, you know, hole, if you will. And so, in my opinion, I call him the father of modern classification. Because believe it or not, the DSM system that we use today, the classification system we use today, really is based um, on some of Emil Kreplin's work to begin with. So I just wanted to let you guys know that. Some of the physical treatments that we still used, even back in the day, right? And this is the turn of the century, less than 100 years ago. Bloodletting, tranquilizing chair, that's the spinning chair that they spin you around, kind of like the office chair that you do for fun, except imagine being strapped down and being spun until you go unconscious. Or until you're so dizzy, you're like, so they'd stop the chair, you'd be like, uh. Yes? Uh, well, let's do it to whoever they thought. I mean, most of the time we focus more on adults. Children, we say they're just immature and they're running around, but it's possible. You know, it used to be that we did not diagnose children with schizophrenia. We said that schizophrenia, we couldn't diagnose it prior to age 18 because it's such a serious diagnosis. Um, today, we, we've changed that perspective. You know. So they didn't really see any difference with spinning Spinning someone around in a chair and something passed out seems like it would cause a lot of issues with your brain bouncing around like that. Yeah, no, I mean, it wasn't like it was a bouncy chair. It was just a spin, spin, spin. But, you know, I, again, they didn't know everything. Of course, we know a lot more now. You know, we know about shaken baby syndrome. We know about these other conditions. We know about traumas to the brains and lesions and bruising and all that kind of stuff. But back then, they were still just kind of, they were just trying to make it all work. It was better than what we had. Early shock treatments, they would actually do, um, sometimes they would actually induce comas in people and insulin shock. 
So they would use insulin, give a person an overdose of insulin, which would throw them into a grand mal seizure, and then we'd try to pull you back uh, from the brink. Because what we believed at the time was that you couldn't be epileptic and schizophrenic at the time. And after having a seizure, people will oftentimes be a little disoriented. They won't remember what happened previously. And so we believe that that was treatment. Electroconvulsive shock therapy we still use today. And then the other one was alleviation of fluid imbalances. So maybe the reason why you're off is because you're masturbating too much and losing too much semen. I, I know that you're chuckling. <laughs> it's kind of kind of corny, but yeah. I mean, you know, so there were some still religious influences in there, but again, we were trying to move away to a more scientific approach, if you will. An example of a uh, organic cause, and I want to just kind of finish up my discussion of organic reasons, right, which is two more slides, and then we'll stop, and again, we'll make it to slide 21, so actually pretty close to where I thought we'd be, right, about halfway through. So general uh, paresthesis is, um, involves a symptom complex consisting of delusions of grandeur, dementia, and progressive paralysis. The paralysis and mental deterioration progressed rapidly to a fatal outcome. This is one of the things that we would see at the time. So these people that just seem to be like rapidly decompensating, you know, delusions and everything else. What we found was that actually this was an infection in the brain caused by syphilis and related, uh, or related to a bacteria. And again, if you were eating, um, you know, think about foods that weren't stored properly and maybe have some bacteria growth in it. And then you eat the bacteria and it would cause you to act odd. And what we later found out was uh, we could try to do malaria fever therapy, induce a high fever to try to break that behavior, or eventually we found out about penicillin and we found out that we could treat it. Syphilis has been a sexually transmitted disease that dates all the way back to, to uh, you know, throughout history. It was a fatal disease, causes an infection in the brain and mental illness. And for the longest time we couldn't treat it. Now all of a sudden we've discovered penicillin and penicillin treats syphilis and people aren't dying anymore. And we go, oh my goodness, mental illness could be like this. Wow. What about today? Do we still believe this organic view today? Well, believe it or not, here's where we're at, right? It says, after a century of organically oriented research, the disease model of mental illness still remains incomplete. We cannot answer all mental illness with one model, even today with all the research we've done medically. With very few exceptions, there's no laboratory test that can be detected or conducted to detect the presence or absence of a mental disorder. Oh, we can find, like you go, well, what about the butterfly ventricles? Isn't that what happens in schizophrenia? Yeah, in 40% of the cases, not 100%. So about the other 60% of the cases. We can't find a smoking gun on the medical side that answers all the questions. So that's why, again, we don't have one paradigm that guides us in our thinking in this field, right? Even biochemical findings, 
We can't find a specific biochemical finding that says this is specifically and only this disorder. We can find that you know, having a decrease in um, dopamine results in certain kinds of Parkinson's types of behaviors, right? So we can find that, but also dopamine decreases in other ways don't always end up that way. And increases, actually increases in dopamine result in hallucination type symptoms. But not all schizophrenics have dopamine issues. So again, we can't, as much as the research we've done over the last hundred years, we still can't find the reason why people act the way they do. There's multiple causes. So that's what we're trying to get at. So that's one of the things to think about. Now where we're at right now is slide 21. So remember 21. What we're going to do is we're going to finish talking about historical perspectives and the next perspective is the psychological view. All right? Any questions? All right. Thanks for listening to part one. Part two coming soon.